Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into this show which celebrates the best of British food and drink. Coming up today, we'll be chatting to cider expert Gabe Cook. We'll learn what cider really is, the common misconceptions, the different styles we can discover, and we'll also be hearing from Fergus the Forager. But first, here's an update from the food world. Firstly, want to celebrate something but you don't have a sweet tooth? Fakey Cakey has launched in London, selling handcrafted savoury layered sushi cakes. This is the brainchild of the team at Tokyo Diner, a long-standing restaurant in Chinatown, and one that until coronavirus happened, has been open 365 days a year, including Christmas Day, since the opening in 1992. Wow. As part of their sushi cake delivery, they have their new ins and new out sets designed to be shared for your household for a special night in. Next up, esteemed Cornish butcher and farmer Philip Warren is on a mission to make Wagyu more affordable in the UK with their Wagyu Jersey beef, the result of a new crossbreed unseen elsewhere in the UK. The beef carries both the Wagyu's enhanced marbling characteristics as well as the amazing flavour and fat of the Jersey cow, commonly used for dairy. Based on the ethos that the relaxed animal produces better meat, the temperament of the Jersey cows has a very positive effect on the meat, along with their special 45-day ageing process. All of their meat, including this tempting-looking Wagyu, can be delivered nationwide. Lastly, despite going through difficult times themselves, it's been great to see how the hospitality industry has continued to pull together to support one another in recent months. One initiative I've seen from the Little Blue Door in Fulham and the Little Orange Door in Clapham is the launch of the £1 brunch to hospitality workers. Really great work. So those are your three foodie things on our doorstep this week. Today, we are speaking all things cider, and I'm now joined by Gabe Cook, aka the Ciderologist. He's an international cider judge, leading global expert, and is even the proud owner of book Ciderology, from history to heritage, the craft cider revolution. So, Gabe, can we kick off, and can you just explain a little bit about what actually is cider? Cider is actually quite a simple drink in terms of what it is and how it's made it is fermented apple juice so you 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 get apples you squish them you extract the juice there's lots of natural fermentable sugars in the juice and yeast converts that sugar into alcohol and once you start thinking about it like that it, it is a fruit fermentation in exactly the same way that wine is a fruit fermentation too except with you know you're utilizing grapes there rather than apples but it goes through the same intrinsic process squish them get the juice juice has got loads of sugar yeast turns sugar into alcohol grapes and apples obviously are different in terms of the fact that the sugar content in grapes is is much higher which means that the alcohol content uh, potentially for wine is is much higher than for for apples it's also the case that grapes are nice and soft so soft that you could extract the juice by treading them underfoot if you were to try and tread apples you might get slightly bruised feet possibly so you have to go through a two-step process the milling the chopping up um the old-fashioned would be uh, to scrat you get a scratter and you scratch your apples where it sort of chops up into fine pieces and then you press that to extract the juice so yeah fermented apple juice that's what cider is 
Okay. So you've been working with cider and cider producers for so around 15 years. So you know a thing or two about the drink. Um, how did you get into it? So cider, everything around cider for me is about where I'm from. So I'm from a little village called Dimmock, which sits just on the Gloucestershire side of the Herefordshire border. And most people associate cider with being from Somerset and from Devon, and rightly so, because they are good, strong, traditional cider-making areas. But actually... Herefordshire is the largest apple growing region in, uh, or certainly for cider in the country, and I bag even bigger than than Kent would be today. Um, and it's the largest cider making region in the world, primarily down to the fact that the world's largest cider making facility is based in Hereford, which is the old um, Bulmer's company, um, with their primary brand being Strongbow, which is the world's largest cider producer. So this is all in Herefordshire. So Herefordshire and Inter Gloucestershire has uh, equally and strong and proud heritage of cider making as further down into the southwest does. And growing up in this little village with this 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 landscape of of apple trees and this kind of heritage obviously i wasn't sort of drinking it you know at primary school give me you know give me give me some kind of credit <laughs> although actually no that no that is actually a lie my very first taste of cider was as a 10 year old my my uncle bought um my two elder brothers who were a few years older than me um a flagon of old rosy cider from westerns which is in the village mm. next door to the one that i grew up in yeah i've had that there you go <laughs> and uh this christmas i as the 10 year old was surreptitiously sneaking into the kitchen and having some little sips of it and enjoyed the taste and didn't kind of like you know sluck it down which is just as well because it was 7.3 percent alcohol at the time um but i just enjoyed the taste and as you know as the teenager cider was my drink of choice i enjoyed the taste of it and then you know came to realize that actually this wasn't just a drink that was available in the supermarket or in the shops that it was a drink that was from the place that I grew up in and started to notice the, the apple trees around, the fact that there were cider makers um, bigger and smaller nearby. And so got into going to uh, actually visiting Westerns. So I was in the village next door and um, enjoyed drinking those ciders. We're talking you know, eight, 20, 18 years ago when uh, Westerns were making some of the best ciders in the country, like absolutely sensational. Mm. They've grown quite a lot since then. In fact, they've grown tenfold in volume since then. They're still a great cider maker and really Really, really important um, but at that point I also wanted to sort of you know became interested in some of the more smaller farm scale operations and so my my brother and I we went on a road trip one I say road trip it was just we went to our nearest one uh, which is like eight miles away at Ross and Y and we were following this side of map and we turned off the made road and suddenly went down this little lane that was it was like being in Hobbiton we were expecting Frodo to run across the road <laughs> with his friends um, it was just wild and beautiful and saw the, the, the tiny little sign that said cider pointing in this direction down an even smaller lane, quite impressive, and then up a driveway. And then here was this beautiful farmhouse and there was a, a door leading underneath the house and there was a sign that said pull string for cider. So we duly pulled the baler twine and a little bell rang and this guy called Mike, he popped his head out and said hello and invited us into the cellar where there were these barrels lined up. And I remember really vividly, he took, a, he took a glass and he filled it up and said, that's dry cider, enjoy that. And the taste sensation of this, of this drink was amazing. The fact that it was, it was still, it wasn't super chilled. Mm. Um, it was cool, but not sort of chilled within an inch of its life. 
um, that it was really bold of flavor of tannins and bolds and spicy and then there was no sugar but it wasn't sort of harsh it was smooth it was just wow this mm. is amazing um and and that kind of got me really interested and hooked into that and so started to investigate other small scale cider makers in in and around but it was really this this place uh, it's called Broom Farm and it's at Peterstow, just outside Ross and Wye, the Ross and Wye Cider and Perry Company. Um, basically, I ended up living and working there for a best part of a year. I lived in, quite literally lived in a shed in the garden. Um, you'll do anything when you're 23, right? Yeah, and, for sure. Um, and I spent, so it was a magical year living and working on the farm, uh, understanding the process of cider making. But more than that, it was... Um, understanding about the varieties and orchards and wildlife and the old customs and culture and the heritage and it just just brought together all the things that I was really interested in and the fact that it was this was something that was so deeply rooted into the landscape and the culture of where I was from that that for me was really important I'm really lucky you know I'm really proud of where I'm from and it's a beautiful landscape and heritage and cider is just really strong evocation of that and so that's that's how it all started okay okay oh I love that story <laughs> um so that cider was yeah it wasn't kind of chilled to an inches of its life and it wasn't super sweet and it wasn't super dry because we, we often associate those qualities with cider and we tend to drink I think majority of people tend to drink cider and they're all quite similar. Um, it's what, what we get at the pub, you know, what's on tap. But there are so many different styles of cider, mm-hmm. like there are with wines and beers. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about styles? Sure. You're absolutely right. The majority of consumers associate cider with being one thing. You know, that mm. drink that you have a pint of on a, on a hot summer's day or you grab some cans when you're going for a barbecue um, or, you know, you'll have a drink to sort of start off the night, but then you'll kind of move on to something else. Cider is generally seen as a singular thing and different brands of varyingly minimal differentiation are, are upon the same kind of theme. But you're absolutely right. And when you actually start to peel back the layers, you, you you start to see that cider does have different styles. And again, it comes back to how cider's made. Cider's made more like a wine um, because you're utilizing these these apples. And and just like with wine, whereby the, the grape varietal is the primary thing that gives you all these different types of wine, it's exactly the same with cider. Depending upon the apple variety that you use, they each have their own unique flavors, properties, and characteristics. Mm. So in, in broad terms, you've got sort of two camps of apple. Um, you have dessert apples, eating apples, cooking apples, um, which, you know, their, their sort of primary intention and purpose um, has been for, for those activities. But but you can make cider from them too. And in fact, the heritage of making cider in the southeast of England, Kent, Sussex and Suffolk and, and around there, is making cider with these with these dessert apples. And, and some great ciders can be made from those. However, the cider that is most commonly associated uh, or I would probably say more broadly associated with with British cider are these more sort of West Country style ciders and these are made with apples that uh, uh, varieties of apple that have been grown for centuries for the sole purpose of making cider we call them cider apples I know it's not the sort of most uh, challenging of top uh, of, of, of titles but these cider apples are what uh, historically have been used to make the ciders in Herefordshire, Gloucestershire, Somerset, Devon, etc. And mm. unlike the eating apples, 
which are lovely and imagine biting into a into a golden delicious or a cox or something like that it's it's brisk and it's fresh and it's vibrant these cider apples um they contain much less of that um, the acidity which gives the sharpness and the freshness but they actually contain quantities of tannin tannin like you would get in a red wine or a tea or a coffee it provides sort of mouthfeel structure uh, potentially some spiciness bitterness and what's called a stringency which is a mouth drying sensation like a cotton mouth kind of thing when all the moisture gets taken out not very pleasant to eat very good at making bold interesting fermented drinks and so depending on whether your cider is made from more of those dessert apples or from those tannic cider apples your cider is going to go down completely different routes even if it's just that so this is almost the equivalent of red wine and white wine even your most basic consumer drinker who maybe they never drink wine they at least know that you can get uh, a, a wine that uh, is of X, you know, sort of uh, a darkish coloration is probably bigger and bolder in flavor profile versus those that are paler, that are generally probably more lighter and fresher. Cider doesn't even have that. Cider is just cider. Um, but but you absolutely do get different styles depending on those two broad camps of apples. And then when you break it down, each individual apple, regardless of whether it's tannic driven or more fresh acid driven, every single apple has a different flavor profile. So depending on which apple you use, you will get a different flavor profile. The mm. reason that people don't know this is because cider makers over the course of the last 50, 60 years, when it's become particularly um, commercialized and mainstream, have made no great focus upon the apple variety. It's more about the experience of what cider is, which is crisp or refreshing or maybe sweet or maybe occasionally kind of dry but that doesn't tell you anything about how it actually tastes that's just saying that it's a bit sweeter or a bit less sweet how about actually describing what this cider is made from and how it tastes what's gone into it and thankfully we are now at a point whereby we've got an amazing range of uh, medium and small scale cider makers that do really place an emphasis around the apple varieties uh, and communicating that too and starting to introduce some kind of language to describe mm. how cider A is different from cider B other than being dry, medium, more sweet. So it's, it's a really exciting time for cider. Yeah, because you wouldn't go into a wine shop and say, well, what's that, what's that wine then? Oh, it's dry. Or, oh, it's quite sweet. Yeah. Uh, and? And more, please? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, um, a, Anything you know, else? A, 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 you know, a Merlot and a Sauvignon Blanc, well, they're, they're both just made from grapes. They're both kind of wine. But it's very clear to understand that mm. there's a big differentiation between them. Same yeah. with beer. Yeah. You don't, you don't go in somewhere, I will have a you might go and say, I oh, will have a beer, please. Well, well that's, that's great. What would you like? A lager? Even in basic kind of pub you'll have a lager you'll have an ale you'll have a stout um maybe you'll have an ipa something like that you know in most basic form and go into any any pub today that slightly sort of prides itself on having you know, a range of different types of beers and then you can add in a whole other layer of sort of belgian beers or maybe it's a, a czech pills or a berliner weisser etc cider is still you go into the pub and there is a cider on tap maybe mm. there's a fruity cider in the fridge and that's about it. And this this is a, this is a real this is a real challenge for cider. And we're in the early stages of I call it the the, the beginning of the conversation around trying to develop 
some language that can describe the different flavours within ciders, and to make some some steps about how one could categorise. And you know, I, I I talk about this a lot in the um, in the presentations that I give and the training, and even dare I say, gratuitous plug in the book that I have written called Ciderology by Gabe Cook, available now. Thank you. Oh, um, and, and and so you do talk about you know West Country style or modern with the dessert apples, and then you know with um, you, you can then look internationally, and there are some different styles from other different cider making nations. But I'm I'm really really keen to stress that I'm not saying that's definitive it's just introducing the concept that they can exist and that Mm. we as an industry need to start this conversation to you know come to come to some some kind of consensus about what these vague styles could be we're not going to have it nailed you know beers and wines have had a few centuries to you know to come to the to come to the stylization but but critically the drinks trade knows what these names mean, whether it be IPA or Merlot or Bordeaux or whatever it is. And so the consumer understands and they have a, a, an, an, an expectation, understanding of what that might taste like so that they know that they like that type of wine or that style of beer, but not the other. Because if somebody goes into a pub and the one cider they've got on tap, let's say, is a really deep, bold, earthy, phenolic tannic monster from the heart of Devon let's say um, and the person who's coming in is like oh do you know what I'm, I'm going to give cider a try I'm, I'm not really sure about it but I'll give it a try if that person happens to be you know they like to drink Malbec that cider that's on tap might be the perfect cider for them because they like big bold earthy characters if they're a Pinot Grigio drinker that's going to be whoa at the completely other end of the spectrum they go oh actually I tried that if that's if that's what cider is, I don't yeah. like cider. Exactly. Cider's not for what me. What is actually the case is that they don't like that style of cider. So it's 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 the challenge to endeavour to introduce those ideals. And it, but it but it needs cider makers, smaller and crucially bigger, to 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 buy into that as well. And well, like I say, it's the start of the conversation. So we're we're on the road. Yeah, some sort of universal language. But I have seen cider, um, fine cider especially, definitely making its way onto various top-end restaurant menus and cider pairings and that becoming more of a thing, which is great. So um, what do you think about cider pairings as opposed to wine pairings? Again, it probably doesn't come onto people's radar, the idea and the concept that you can match ciders with food, but you can (laughs) and again if we pair it back to um, how cider is made the fruit fermentation actually cider shares a huge amount of the sensory characteristics that wine does acids tannins sugars fruitiness phenolics um you know um minerality all these kind of characters which you associate with wine cider it can, depending on the type and the style of cider, has those two. And so the way that you approach, you know, I'm I'm of the opinion that there are no rules when it comes to, to matching any drink with any food. But there are some guiding principles that, you know, often can help people to make a good match. Whatever that you would do with wine, you can do the same with cider. So, you know, 
Sauvignon Blanc is often sort of you know put forward as a fantastic match with with seafood or with, you know shellfish, and and mm-hmm. rightly so. It's not so bold and overpowering of the delicate flavors of the fish and the freshness and the lightness can enhance kind of the you know the sweet and the salty characters coming through. Do the same with cider. Go for a nice, light, lean, fresh, crisp cider rather than something that's really bold and earthy and tannic. Likewise, if you're trying to match with a let's say you're going for a, a roast um you know uh, a, a roast beef um you wouldn't go for a really really light delicate cider because it would just be overpowered by the um by the strength of, the, of those flavors of that meat so equally you do the same you know with the cider you go for a big bold earthy tannic cider so you can do it yeah yeah i was going to ask what your favorite apples are for making cider but you've kind of answered that it just really depends on what style you're after yeah but have you got any favorite ciders at the moment or kind of ones that you always return to well as british so, mainly we're british, talking about british, yes. <laughs> uh, as far as cider you know apples are concerned um there is a variety called yarlington mill which is a classic somerset uh cider apple which which is a favourite for a lot of cider makers, and you know, I've I after leaving the uh, the the, sh- the shed at Broom Farm, I did actually go on to be a cider maker for Westerns for a few years. So mm. made cider on the big scale, um, but it turned out I was actually better at talking about cider rather than making it. So left that behind professionally, but I do make a little <laughs> bit of cider every now and again. And and Yarlington Mill is an apple that I like to use because it's it gives these really lovely big earthy tannic characters but they're soft and smooth and kind of velvety it's like a big hug and so Yarlington Mill in any kind of blend I think always adds sort of something into it but there are loads um as for any kind of ciders that um I've I've kind of come back to I suppose I've got a little bit of nostalgia for the Ross on my cider and Perry company that's where I learned to make cider um but I do genuinely think that they make some of the most interesting bold and evocative ciders there around there's also a chap in herefordshire called tom oliver who's a bit of a, a legend within the cider world he um, is that oliver's cider it's oliver's cider so yeah as I've well seen as there lots of mission starred restaurants are big fan of, of this his is cider. It. tom 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 and his ciders um probably the, the, uh, and it's in conjunction with um a, a company called the fine cider company which is this distributor of these fine ciders to get them into these kinds of restaurants and and felix who who runs the fine cider company tom was his first sort of patron his first customer and it was the uh, yeah the idea and the concept that these are ciders that are sort of bold and kind of characterful and that can match with different um, types and styles of, uh, of of food. And Tom ciders, you know, they can, they can be really kind of bold and characterful. They don't always work, and I don't always like them. It's not just a case of every single one I love because these are all very idiosyncratic. Um, you know, every every year, the even if you use the apples from the same tree. Year on year, you're going to get a vintage difference. Um, so it is different every single time. And from a sort of side of making point of view, um, the likes of Ross and Wye and Tom Oliver and, and, and many others utilize wild yeast. So they're not introducing a culture yeast, which has a very, um, you know, it, it is known what that yeast is going to do, which the majority of cider makers use because it's actually quite important to have consistency for lots of cider makers. I completely understand that. And you can utilize mm. yeast to great effect to create different sort of aromatic profiles and do different things. But there are some cider makers who, who want to utilize the wild yeast that exist all around, um, partly because of it being that sort of min- minimal intervention process. 
but sometimes just because you know they want they want the sort of the fruit and the landscape to to speak for itself through the ciders and you know it's not just one wild yeast there are multiple and so they each have their parts played during the fermentation and it produces a wealth and a range of different kind of profiles and you can get the most complex ciders possible on occasion though you can also get the worst ciders ever made because you don't have the control <laughs> over which yeast and which yeah. bacteria are doing things and sometimes they do a little bit of a dirty protest in the cider and they do not taste very nice so it's kind of the yeah. Well, it's like natural wine, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. So um, you... you have that risk and that you kind of just have to leave the wine to do its thing and the hope it's going to turn out well, but it, and it just might not. But that's the minimal intervention side of things. Yeah, it's... You know, I, I... Please, don't get me wrong. I'm all for the minimal intervention approach. For the ciders that I make, that's what I do, but that's also partly because I'm slightly lazy. But I really do like the idea and the concept that this drink can be made in this sort of natural way let's call it again i'm really at pains to point out that i don't mean to say that then a cider that is made with a cultured yeast is is worse it's just different again it's part of how the cider makes one of the one of the one of the tools that the cider makers got at their disposal to be able to create differences some of the favorite ciders i've ever drunk have been a really really highly aromatic ciders like an aromatic white wine i'm really into my sort of gewurztramina and pinot gris and stuff like that mm. and there are some apples like russets they're really aromatic and you if you utilize uh, an aromatic type yeast you can create amazing kind of drinks but yeah, with when you are utilizing the wild yeast, uh, you know it, it is there is a risk that it can kind of go wrong, um, and it, it challenges me when I taste. To be fair, not so many wild ferment ciders. If a cider maker makes you know ten different batches, seven of them will be great, and they deserve to go into bottle. There'll be some that maybe aren't so great. Um, but if somebody, whether it be a cider maker or a natural wine maker, says try this and it's you know it's 15 quid a bottle and if it just tastes of vinegar or of eggs then i don't think that's a good cider regardless of whether it's wild ferment or you know mm. you know matured on with unicorn's tears or whatever you know if if it is just pure vinegar i don't think that makes a good drink and it, i think it happens more so in part of the natural wine world whereby there are some of these drinks that go in uh, to bottle and it's like that's how it's supposed to be that's how it turned out and I'm like well I well I don't want to drink that and yeah, not well it's not good and not, <laughs> but the thing is not all natural wines are like that and not, that's not everyone's kind of approach so it's there is a perception that you know a natural wine is just a, a, a poorly made wine and well that's just a poorly made wine in, in my humble opinion so yeah it's it's a, it's an interesting path to, to go down mm. certainly anybody who's into natural wines try a cider try a wild ferment cider and there's huge crossover in the flavor profiles and things that are going on so it's yeah. it's a way and it's also with some of the beer drinkers as well ciders whether it's like a wild ferment sort of plays into territory with drinks um some of these belgian beers like gers these these lambic kind of beers um there's a lot of sort of crossover and similarity there too okay okay and uh moving on to the sort of trendy side of things and the side of renaissance and what we should be expecting hopefully uh, in the next i don't know 10 15 years i've seen on instagram you've mentioned rose cider yeah uh, is there anything else that we are looking at well obviously 2020 being the slightly challenging year that it that it has been for everybody and you know cider makers have been 
you know hit quite hard because you know they haven't had the volume sales and you know quite reliant on pubs a lot of cider makers too um you know that a lot of the cider makers you know because it's a vintage drink like you make it like a wine a lot of the cider makers tanks are still full with you know the last year's harvest cider that they haven't been able to to sell so there's challenge but Mm. being positive and continuing to look into the future i think there are going to be um, some interesting trends coming in. Uh, we just mentioned the rosé cider there. Um, that ostensibly just means a pink cider, and that pinkness is normally achieved through the addition of of something that does have some coloration in there. Um, you, you can, there are a very few number of actually red-fleshed apples, whereby you press the apples and the juice is pink, um, and it retains the pinkness into, um, into the bottle. Well, that's quite challenging to do. Um, I personally think that we're going to see two things one is going to be on the on the slightly more experimentational front is going to be flavored ciders but not just flavored ciders that are um super sweet super artificial fruity i'm not i'm a man on the side of the world i'm not against flavored ciders per se the mm-hmm. challenge is that the majority of flavored ciders available in the uk are not what I would call great exponents of cider. They're, they're, they're not great drinks. If you have a cider that is a well-made cider, and if you utilize a, a flavoring, another thing, which might be fruit, it might be hops, it could be honey possibly, um, and add it into it carefully and balanced, and it's a, it's a really good raw material, other thing that you're adding, and you get them to balance together, and the cider character shines through, I think you can make some really interesting flavoured ciders. So I think that, I hope that we'll start to see some of that sort of experimental area, but but really, really good interpretations of those drinks. But most importantly for me, hopefully will be an emphasis around the apple or the pear possibly, as, you know, being the focus, again, focusing on this cider is made with these apples, they taste differently, or it's a single varietal apple, mm. or it's been, you know, there's a bit of process that has been undertaken, maybe a barrel aging, or maybe a process called keeving, which helps to retain a natural residual sweetness. These are the things that have happened to create this differentiating range of ciders, and, you know, putting that in the forefront of consumers' minds. When the when the pubs get back to being somewhere approaching what we uh, what we know and love them to be, the idea and the concept of um, the Tim I was using was craft keg. So great ciders, but available in a keg packaging format. So that the the idea and the concept of how to drink, you know, for a lot of people, drinking a cider out of a 750 ml bottle will be anathema, especially if if it's you know commanding particular kind of prices. But get a get a cider in a keg. Um, somewhere between five and six percent alcohol but tastes amazing that is going to help bring people a um, across from beer but also maybe it'll give pre-existing cider consumers greater choice and that they can choose what kind of things are going to are going to happen so yeah well i think restaurants have been really great in putting some fine ciders on their menus and lots of different um different styles um but if i wanted to at home uh, discover some cider i'm by talking of discover cider that is um, a website that you run isn't it where you you teach um, educate people about different 
different ciders? Where can I go to find out more and be able to try them maybe in the comfort of my own home? Yeah, so the Discover Cider campaign uh, was launched um, a few weeks ago. And it is just a rallying cry for for championing about how awesome cider is, basically. that There are these diversities of styles, that it is awesome with food, that there's this wonderful cider community of people. It's a friendly place. It's an inclusive place. Um, and that cider has the most amazing sustainable credentials as well, starting in the orchards, um, these carbon sequestering landscapes that are uh, amazingly rich and biodiverse and that are great spaces and places for uh, physical health for mental health and for social cohesion there's a load of awesome stuff there and um, there's lots of information about yeah different styles and different sort of stories and locations and these different cider makers and mm. you know what's happened um in the sort of post-COVID or you know during this COVID time is that if they didn't before, most cider makers now have a an online shop. So you can buy directly from the cider makers. So, you know, we've got a directory of all our members uh, on a cider map on the website. That's www.discovercider.com. And so, you know, check that out. But otherwise there are other, you know, there are other cider making, um, or rather, sorry, cider selling platforms. There are cider shops, people like Crafty Nectar, or if you go to Scrattings, you know, these are or cider online. There are there are places where you, you can buy a range of, of different products. Um, bigger online retailers like uh, Ebria as well, they sort of stock quite a lot. Just just yeah, be be inquisitive and, and curious and don't presume that, you know, that there's nothing there. There is actually quite a lot out there now. It's just um yeah, get searching. Yeah, definitely. And are most, just because you mentioned single varietal ciders, are most ciders produced with one apple or is it a blend, um, a blend of different ones? Most ciders historically and today are made with, with, with blends of apples. Okay. Um, that is because unlike grapes, whereby, you know, th- those, those grapes have large quantities of, of the sort of building blocks of the drink, of the acidities and varying degrees of tannins and phenolics and sugars and things. And there's huge amounts of structure. Apples being the way that they are, they don't normally have all of these kind of different qualities and properties. They, they can be quite idiosyncratic. So by blending different apples together, you can sort of create extra levels of, of, of structure and integrity to, mm. to get to all the sort of the, the, the balance potentially that you would want. That said... You can make cider from single um, from single apple varietals, and historically there were one or two that that were utilised um, because they they did sort of have have the range of different things. But increasingly, cider makers are making single varietals to showcase the fact that the apple is absolutely kind of key and crucial and they do have their own unique flavors so i mentioned yarlington mill that's probably one of the more popular ones that's made as a single variety if you're after a lovely brisk fresh clean thirst quenching cider don't go for a yarlington mill because it will not give you that experience if you want to have something bold and smooth and toffee and caramel and something to have, you know, by the fireside in the middle of winter, do go for that. But it is quite idiosyncratic in its flavor profile. If you do want to have something that's, you know, light and brisk, there's a great um, there's a great South African cider maker called Scully, which is available in the UK. And they make cider from Granny Smith, Golden Delicious and, and Pink Lady. And you get that exact experience from biting into one mm. by going for their ciders. So... They, they are all entirely unique and it's a it's a playful and a fun thing and a cool thing to make single varietals to 
if nothing else, to, to again, to, to showcase that cider is made from apples and depending on the apple that you use, they taste differently. Mm. And have you been all around the UK visiting different cider makers? Because I know it's historically um, West Country and you said Gloucestershire and Herefordshire but, uh, and South East. But do you get cider makers up north? You must have visited so many. You get cider makers everywhere. Wherever there are apples, you can make cider. It's as simple as that. And, you know, over the last... 10 years, the growth and the proliferation of cider makers, maybe even 20 years, but especially over the last 10 years, the growth of the growth of cider makers outside of the typical regions that you just, just mentioned has mm. been huge. They're not big cider makers, they're small, but they are cider makers nonetheless, and some of them are absolutely awesome. There are a number of cider makers in the East Midlands, for example. Who knew that Northamptonshire had such a rich cider-making heritage? <laughs> if you were go up into Yorkshire, in East Yorkshire, in West Yorkshire, in Huddersfield, in and around Greater Manchester, in Cheshire, there's a great cider maker called Thornborough in 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 uh, in the Yorkshire Dales. I was actually up in Scotland a few weeks ago. I decided to do my staycation all the way up into as far north in these isles as you can get, up into North Scotland, and even hopping over to Orkney. But on the black Isle, which is near to, uh, just north of Inverness, there's a brilliant cider maker there called the Caledonian Cider Company, making, in my opinion, some of the best cider ciders in the country. So they're everywhere. Norfolk to Anglesey, brilliant cider makers in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland too, down into South Wales, into West Wales. Wherever there are apples, you can make cider. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And making things at home, obviously, because of lockdown has become very popular aside from banana bread and things like that sourdough yeah can you make a uh, cider at home is it easy or would you just think no just just get it from somewhere great down the road well i mean if you have apples then don't waste them you know they're they're wonderful you could do many things with them you could you could just squeeze them and juice them or you know chop it up and and turn them into jam or apple rings. Do something with them because they are amazingly versatile. But obviously, I would think that, you know, cider is the ultimate utilization of the apple. Uh, and if you're keen, go for it. There's only there's only one vaguely challenging bit of the process. And as I described the fact, you know, apples are quite tough compared to grapes. Mm -hmm. And so you just need to turn your solid apple into a sort of mushed apple so that you can then press it so you need a little bit of equipment you need a bit of equipment to to press the apples um, but you can get very basic kind of basket presses which do the job fairly cheaply on the internet it's the it's the converting the solid apple into the mush that's maybe the more challenging bit mm. if you're keen you can buy little uh, mills which help to chop it up you can sort of utilize a um you know, like a food blender, but it chops it up a little bit too much, a bit too sort of baby foodish, and it makes it a bit too pulpy and mushy. You could just be a bit caveman and whack the apples with a big stick <laughs> in a in a tub or like a trub, you know, and just ma pulp it, mash it into, you know, really kind of broken down apple. Or, you know, invest a little bit of money in some kind of mill, and so it chops it up. So, you know, if if you've got a few apple trees you know, you, you're potentially going to get a, a bit of cider off it. And then you, you just need either some plastic containers or some, you know, glass demijohns 
it's not actually overly difficult to to make cider you know it will the sugar once you've got your juice it will turn you know into alcohol it will ferment even if you do nothing to it because of the wild yeasts but just a simple few steps in terms of making sure everything's clean making sure your apples are nice and ripe making sure that once the fermentation is finished that you don't have a big air gap at the top of your container because that's where bacteria can get in there are very simple guidance there's a few simple cider making books out there craft cider making by andrew lee is a great one and indeed in ciderology by by gabe cook there is um, a little bit of a step-by-step guide in there too and then lastly it's that time of year isn't it it's autumnal it's wintry you mentioned um you know it's a nice cider by the fire cider and cocktails and mold cider has been very popular do you make hot cocktails with cider are you quite a fan of of that I mean, making a making a, a whether you call it like a mold cider as a as a cocktail, but blending different things together. Yeah, I'm a fan of that absolutely, especially you know when it does get a little a little cooler. Um, from a mold cider perspective, you know you just just approach it as you would mulling any other drink, and it's your classic utilization of spices: your cloves, your star anise, your coriander, etc. And you can do that. You know, again, no rules. You can mix it up how you want. Personally. I quite like the chai spices, so I like lots of cardamom um, and to prefer to get, you know, that sort of end of the the spice spectrum in there. Mm. Um, It just seems that for for my palate, it just seems to work pretty well. Um, But yeah, and cider, the the, the utilisation of cider in cocktails is is woefully underutilised, I would say, at the moment and is just starting to to gain a little bit of greater awareness can utilize it do you know trial whether it be a really nice light fresh clean almost like you you can get ciders that have gone through full champagne method so they are sparkling ciders so you can utilize that instead of prosecco in any any cocktail that would utilize that Mm. or if you do want something um you know there are some ciders that have got a level of of bitterness like you would get with those spirits that contain you know real sort of bittering kind of characters and so you could utilize those accordingly too again it's about playing and experimenting don't don't have any preconceptions don't don't think oh i can't do that give it a try because you never know okay were you in um you said you visited orkney didn't you i did yes um did you by any chance go and visit to sam from orkney craft vinegar i didn't i um I sw- we went past it, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. But we, um, but we didn't. Is is that on on the mainland or is that up on Westry? I'm trying to remember exactly. Where I think it it's on the mainland. Yeah, I think so. I think we we saw it and we sort of drove past, but we were too busy going to you know prehistoric ring forts and driving yeah. and walking a, along you know precipitous cliff faces whilst being beaten by the most horrific and intense wind and weather. It's. Uh, um, it's pretty wild up there, but an amazing, yeah. beautiful landscape. For anybody who hasn't been, I would say go. But oh, yes, yeah, Scotland. But not in the wintertime. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but he uh, he has, he makes incredible um, craft vinegar and uses forest ingredients like meadowsweet and honey and rose hips. Um, and then he just, he says that some of the best bartenders around the world, so just because I spoke to him on, on series one of the Doorstep Kitchen, he says some of the best bartenders around the world use his vinegars as a replacement of imported ingredients like lemon juice. Um, mm. And they have this um, Highland Park malt vinegar, which is used these um, whiskey casks and that and it's um, matured in that um, but I, I'd say with cider as well if you have as you said you said a very bitter cider or a sparkling cider that could be used like a Prosecco to top it up 
those ingredients could be amazing in replace of um, things instead of flying around the, the planet. You can get those qualities from cider on your doorstep. Absolutely. Again, it's trying to trying to get people to, to, to just to be aware that there is this wow you know there are ciders that sort of are made the same way and taste the same as champagne that you can get bitter characters that you can get really fruity characters that you can get you know really sharp zingy characters that you can even if you want you can distill cider and turn it into cider brandy and have a and have an apple based spirit or, or if you don't want to age it almost have like an apple eau de vie as well that they are all they are all made here in in britain um and some of the, and you know, there's there's genuinely, I, maybe I would say that some of the best drinks that that are able to purchase in Britain. And as we do become more aware about our you know, impact upon carbon, but not just that, about also supporting you know local and trying to uphold heritage and tradition, we have it all here. It's it's just a little bit undiscovered, and that's what kind of excites me a little bit is that I feel like I'm. I'm in on the secret. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's so, so, so exciting. And I'm desperate for a cider now. <laughs> and I want to go and order a box of lots of different types and try them all. Um, but lastly, Gabe, a question that I ask all my guests, what is your favourite British seasonal ingredient right now? And I'm afraid you can't say the apple because <laughs> I know it's in season at the moment, but we had Sam on last week from... Um, the cheese bar in London, um, the Cellarman Sam, who ah, is yes. very into his um, cheese, of course, but very yeah. into cider as well. And he, yeah. we were talking about the apple. But have you got any other ideas? Do you know what? Um, it's, uh, it's a bit of a throwback and a memory from being uh, a boy. But one of the things that I really used to enjoy was a good old fashioned corn on the cob. And mm. we are coming, well, right, you know, uh, I've, uh, where I am here in Devon, there's actually, it's actually for cattle feed rather than for human consumption. But there is a, there's a field of maize just behind me. Um, and my girlfriend went to, to a local farm shop uh, just yesterday um, to get a few bits and bobs and came back with, with a few of these beautiful, huge, actually, um, corn. And we had it in a salad. And Oh, it's, it, yes, it's the sweetness, but it's more than that. It's the intensity. And, you know, um, I lived in New Zealand for uh, a few years and the idea and the concept of eating seasoning was really, really brought to the fore there because whenever it was out of season of something, the price of that food increased dramatically because it's in the middle mm -hmm. of bloody nowhere. Everything has to be, you know, shipped or flown in. It has a massive impact. So that really showed me about the concept of eating locally. I, you know, it, it wasn't on my radar anywhere near as much before I moved back. So before I moved out there. So coming back to the UK, I am so much more aware about um, endeavouring, no one's perfect, of course, but endeavouring to eat more seasonally where possible. But I, I, sweet corn is one of those things that I now refuse to eat um, unless it is seasonal British now. So I do so and I and I make up for it by eating as much as I possibly can, turn a little bit yellow, a little bit jaundiced, yeah. after, you know, by the time we get into sort of mid-late October, but very happy with it. Yeah, brilliant. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Doorstep Kitchen, Gabe. It's really lovely to speak to you about all things cider. It's my absolute pleasure to be here, Kat. Thanks for inviting me. And yeah, get out there, get drinking cider, and uh, spread the good word. Before we end today's show, we'll be hearing from Fergus Drennan, aka Fergus the Forager. 
He's a wild food experimentalist, educator, and runs regular immersive foraging courses. What could be more romantic than gathering wild roses? In the spring, we can gather the flowers, and in the autumn, the hips. The ones you're most likely to encounter are the dog rose, Rosa canina, field rose, Rosa arvensis, beech, or sometimes called Japanese rose, Rosa rugosa, a large sherry one with sometimes white but often deep and large pink flowers. And if you're very lucky, the burnet rose, a whitish flower but an unusual black hip. It's Rosa pimpanellifolia. That's a mouthful. <laughs> so you can gather those flowers and you can do so many things. You can use them to make tea, obviously, and just eat them in salads, but you can make syrups and use for rose water, which you can put in biscuits and the, the syrup can go in sorbets and ice creams. And you can infuse the dried, lightly dried petals into a lightly flavored oil for salad dressings and other uses too. I often infuse the petals, particularly of the fra fragrant Rosa Ragosa, into rum or vodka or gin and then sweeten it. And then in the autumn, you've got the gorgeous hips. Now, you don't have to wait for them to be soft, but if you want the simplest rose hip eating experience, then leave it until ideally when they are soft in October, November, and just squeeze and let the pulp. Um, kind of just, it kind of, uh, I can't quite describe how it kind of comes out, but suck that out, like minus the seeds, seeds that juicy kind of flesh. Now, the seeds of the rose hips can kind of irritate both internally if you kind of eat them just a little bit, but also if you're a bit mean at school, you might have opened up the, hoe, the, the rose and uh, rose hip and sprinkled seeds down people's backs as a botanical itching powder bit mean to do don't do that but gather those hips and just blitzed up 200 of those blitzed up in a high power blender with some a pint of water and then squeeze for a fine cloth you have a wonderful drink then of course you can you can boil in water extract um, the extract add some sugar make a lovely syrup my favorite thing to do is blend lots up with some water squeeze through a cloth and weigh the same amount as the weight of the rose hips in onions and beetroot. Cook those vegetables in what essentially is then a rose hip stock and add ginger and chili and garlic, a bit of red wine vinegar, and you have a delicious spicy rose hip soup. Thanks, Fergus. To learn more about wild edibles, you can follow at Fergus the Forager on Instagram and at the Doorstep Kitchen for seasonal recipes. That's all for this episode of The Doorstep Kitchen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please do rate, review and subscribe as it really makes a difference. Next week, I'll be speaking to Gregory Marshall, founder of Blackthorn Salt, an extraordinary operation on the west coast of Scotland, making beautiful sea salt crystals on a huge blackthorn tower. And Fergus will be back to teach us about sea buckthorn. See you next time.